We are in our Advent series. Last week we got to hear an amazing sermon from Steve on longing as we wait for the coming of our Lord. Um, And we're going to do this week in Luke 2 and next week on our ultimate hope, um, looking at the advent of the second coming of Jesus and the fulfilling of all things and the renewing of all things. So this morning we're in Luke 2, verse 8 through 11. And then I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump right into it. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Father, thank you Thank you that you did not leave us where we're at. Thank you that you entered into the mess of this world when you didn't have to. Thank you that the Christmas season, the Advent that we're celebrating, is truly a time of great joy. I ask, Holy Spirit, you would show us, um, everyone in this room, by your Spirit, will you show us, will you remind us, will you reveal to us by your grace just how great this news is? Will you remind us of what you've done in Jesus, and will you fill us with joy? Maybe refresh us again if we've been following you for a while, Jesus, that you would refresh us again with the joy of your salvation. I ask that this time wouldn't just be um, sharing information, but you, Holy Spirit, would speak. You would convict. You would bring a great conviction of the good news of great joy. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the summer of 2018, and during that summer, The World Cup of Soccer was going on. So the eyes of the world, as is what happens when the World Cup is on, the eyes of the world were on these games. And there was much rejoicing and lamenting, depending on how your country was doing. Uh, So joy, sadness, all depending on how you were doing. Uh, And then on July 2nd, uh, during the knockout stages of the World Cup, as you know, Mexico was playing Brazil and Belgium was playing Japan. Um, and on that day, July 2nd, uh, some images flashed across the screen of the world news. And we're gonna, I'm going to put up those images. We'll put up that image. Um, and it's a screenshot from a video, a grainy video, a grainy screenshot. Um, and in this, when this footage and these images came across the screen, the whole world was rejoicing. The reason is, about 10 days earlier, 12 boys and their soccer coach in Thailand had gone exploring caves. Some of you guys remember this story. They'd gone exploring caves after one of their soccer practices. And it started raining way more than they thought, and those boys were lost in the cave. And so for 10 days, the world almost assuredly knew that these boys had encountered uh, their death in these caves. But on July 2nd, after there was a reaching out to some very strange people that were hobbyist cave divers. A lot of them that were in Europe and the UK, uh, they had the hobby, uh, not, not paid for it, to explore 
caves that were unexplored, depths going thousands of meters deep into these unexplored dark caves. Sounds absolutely terrifying. Don't know why anyone would do that, but they were uniquely equipped to find these boys. And unlikely as it was, on July 2nd, they encountered these boys and their coach, every single one of them, alive in that cave after a two-hour swim underneath the land of Thailand, and through those waters, they found them alive. And the world rejoiced because the rescue was underway. And it was great joy. And in our passage today, the angels appear to this unlikely group of people, these shepherds in a field, and they have something. They have a message. These angels have a message for these shepherds. It's a message for us today. And the news is this. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day, in the city of David, is born a Savior. This day is born a Savior, and that is great news. He is Christ. He's Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's also Lord. He's King. It's very clear. But this morning, we're going to focus on the reality that Jesus was born Savior. He was born Savior. And it's really good news because all we're going to talk about this morning is that we need a Savior. Whether we know it or not, in this room, this world and every single one of us needs a Savior. Last week, Steve talked about longing. He's talked about how God is a God who responds to our longing. And I think the whole world whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, knows about this longing. They know, we know, this world is incredibly broken. We know, simply, things are not as they should be. Even if we don't identify ourselves as the problem, which the Bible does a great job of doing, the whole world knows things are not as they should be. And for centuries and centuries, humans in their own power have tried to save themselves. They've tried to bring salvation to the world. That started with way back before we know it, we have Pax Romana, you have the peace of Rome, the might of Rome would be bring peace to the world because they would rule and bring peace to every place that they conquered. And then moving into the 20th century, we have some of the worst people that, that accomplished the most horrific tragedies in human existence, started with the desire to save the world in their own power. In the 20th century, um, we had the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Historian Lawrence Rees <clears throat> said, despite the differences of Hitler and Joseph Stalin, who led the Soviet Union, they were united by a common passion. Listen to this. Their desire to create what they believed was a utopia here on earth. Their desire to create what they believed was a utopia here on earth. Another commonality they both, ha- both had was they were completely godless. This, they knew, had nothing to do with God, and so they removed God. They persecuted. Russia absolutely outlawed Christianity. And uniquely ironic, the Soviet Union's philosophy, their work was to bring justice to the working class and equality to all. And over the next 75 years, this irony played itself out. And a society committed to this justice 
achieved the exact opposite. In an interview of one of the editors of a Russian magazine, that a Russian newspaper that had lived through those days of the Soviet Union, he said, with the best of intentions, we ended up creating the greatest monstrosity the world has ever seen. Archives were released that detailed in the Soviet Union alone <clears throat> during the 20th century and during this reign, the deaths of 60 million people at the hands of their own government and the estimates from the Moscow Times were that half, half of all Russian males who died in the 20th century died of unnatural causes from war, famine, execution, or imprisonment. This is the result of man attempting to save themselves. It only gets worse. The trust in our own power, what we can create, the salvation that we can bring it only gets worse. Another former, former communi communist got to the heart of the issue. This is not just a communist issue, this is an us issue. He got to the heart of it. <clears throat> After he had went through this, he has this quote, I had no idea that such horrors were taking place under communism. I became a communist with the best of ideals to fight racism, poverty, bring about just society. Now I learn that we created a monster we saw the evil in others, but not in ourselves. The danger of evil is inside all of us, rich or poor, socialist or capitalist. In a beautiful way, the Bible gives us an incredibly realistic view of our situation. That the problems of this world are much deeper and they live in us. In the UK, uh, a few hundred years ago, author G.K. Chesterton, a Christian author, the newspaper submitted this question out into the public, what's wrong with the world? And they got all these responses, eloquent responses, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote back simply and said, dear sir and madam, I am. I am. And the Bible is so realistic about our situation. It's realistic about our helplessness. The Christmas story really is a story of how helpless we are to save ourselves unless God shows up. And the good news of great joy is he showed up. He showed up as a baby born in a barn to a poor family, no status, the most unlikely of saviors, the way God always does things. <laughs> he always does it like this from start to finish in Scripture to show it is his power, his might that saves so Jesus, he shows up in a barn, and the rescue of the world was underway. Like that rescue of those cave divers, those, those boys caught in a cave, they had no ability to save themselves. Those divers showed up, and they had a chance. We had no chance, but Jesus showed up. He showed up, Jesus showed up, because central to who God is, is he is a rescuer. God is a God of rescue. The reason I know that is it's built right into the name of Jesus. In Matthew 1.21, an angel tells Joseph, Mary is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Joseph and Mary did not pick the name of Jesus. God picked the name of Jesus. It was a very common name. It was from the Hebrew name Joshua, 
but it has a meaning. I'm Michael um, Green is a, a New Testament scholar, and he has this quote of what the name Jesus means. The word, that word Jesus has a meaning. Yahweh saves. God to the rescue, if you like. Right into the name of Jesus, God saves. Yahweh saves. So when we sing, what a beautiful name it is, I speak the name of Jesus, let come into your mind the reality God saves. He wants that. What a beautiful name it is. It is a beautiful name because right in there, the name of Jesus means God saves. Our rescue is here. So God is a rescuer. But what does that mean for us? This is a big topic, and I can't go into all of it. We don't have enough time. We keep, we stay here till the night. So we're going we're gonna to approach it with three different parts. We're just going to look at what has God saved us from in Jesus? How do we receive this salvation? And what has he saved us into? So what has he saved us from? How do we receive it? And what has he saved us into? He saved us from something, but into something as well. And how do we receive it? That okay? All right. Whether you like it or not, this is just what's going to happen. Okay. Um, and forewarning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sharing some scriptures. Most of them will be on the screen. I just want us to see this in scripture. I just want to see us the, the depth of it, the beauty of it. And so we're going to be putting some scriptures on the screen, and I'm going to be sharing, sharing a lot. Uh, it's a little abnormal, but uh, we're going to do that. So what do we say from? Our three enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Jesus saves us from sin, Satan, and death. So right off the bat, just want to make it clear all of these things work together, and they work together to do one thing. They work together to separate us from God. We are intended, we were intended to dwell with him. And in the garden, Adam and Eve were dwelling with God. That was his design. That was his desire. And sin and Satan and death separate us from God. And the reason God came and brought that rescue is to reunite us, Corinthians would say, to reconcile us back to God. First Peter would say that the righteous died for the unrighteous. Jesus died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the central reason to bring himself glory in us by bringing us and reuniting us back to himself. So sin, we simply have missed the mark. Sin, I know, is a super common and familiar word to, to us um, but another way, and when you look at the, the, the Hebrew and the different words and meanings behind it, it means we just, we have failed to live into our, our design. We have missed the mark wildly. We were meant, as Jesus said, the fulfillment of all the law and prophets, to love God and love each other, to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And each one of us in this room have failed miserably to do that and live that life. And that is the future world that God has. Is that will, that is where that, that is what will happen in his world. And we've failed to do that. And so with us, we have a, a, a record, a debt held against us because of our sin. And so we need forgiveness. 
Colossians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven our trespasses. We need the forgiveness to be reconciled back to God. And Jesus, through his death and his bloodshed, makes complete provision for that, where we can be made completely clean and reunited back to God. But not only that, here and now, Jesus made it really clear. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. There's plenty of other scriptures that make it clear that without Jesus and without saving, we're slave to sin. So not only forgiven, we are freed from the slavery where we have to obey sin. We have to obey our desires. We have to obey. There's no chance and no ability for us to live outside of that unless Jesus comes, cleanses us, and sets us free from sin by his presence in us. Because all throughout Scripture and the New Testament, the most common title for those that have been saved is that they are in Christ. That they are in Christ. They've brought, been brought into union with Jesus. And so all of his righteousness is given to us, but not only his righteousness, but his life. So in the same way, Jesus lived a life free from sin. He did not sin, but he died for sin in order that we would be freed from it. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the very end. But what I want to make clear is this sin condition keeps us from God's future. And what Jesus has rescued us from is this present evil age because this world will be judged. God has set and appointed a day for Jesus to judge this world. And we will be judged. And the rescue he provides, he comes and offers himself. And Jesus says, I want you to escape this judgment. And you cannot unless I give myself to you unless you receive my forgiveness in my life. Galatians 1 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. And in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable, and it's a very direct and feels a little bit harsh to us, but the stakes are that high, and we are that helpless he makes clear what will happen in that judgment. I'm going to we'll put it on the screen in Matthew 13, 41 through 43. Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is saying this judgment is coming. But Jesus showed up to deliver us from this present evil age. This world is passing away. This world will be judged. And we all deserve to be a part of that judgment. And as a result, separated from him forever. But look at that last line, what Jesus accomplishes. The righteous will shine like sun, like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What an incredible privilege. What a, what a thing that Jesus does for us, that we who were helpless and had no ability to save ourselves, he offers himself so that we escape. We are rescued from the judgment 
that this present evil age will come under when he comes again, but not just rescued, shine like suns in the kingdom of their father. That is his offer, and that is what he provides to us in his life and his death. But Satan, sin entered the world because when that perfect relationship was happening with Adam and Eve, he tempted them not just to do a bad thing, but to mistrust the goodness of God. So did God really say that you would die? Did God really say this? And still today, Satan tells us those lies. Did God really say, is he really going to judge the world? Can you really count on him? Is there really life in his name? All of those questions are temptations to mistrust God. And when Adam and Eve mistrusted God, sin entered the world. But let's look at what Jesus does in Colossians 1.13. says, For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Let me read that again. For he... Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Because sin is in the world, Satan rules through the power of sin, and it's, and Scripture says that Satan is the ruler of this world. So we're either in two kingdoms, and the domain of darkness is Satan's kingdom, where he does what he wants to do, and we see the fruit of it. Even if we can't see it in our lives necessarily, we see it in others, by God's grace, we can see it in ours where Satan is the ruler of this world. And what Jesus does by his death and resurrection, he delivers us from the domain of darkness. And again, not just delivers us, but brings us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Satan is also disarmed. Where he had power and authority, he's disarmed. Colossians 2 says he disarmed, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So in the cross, he took the record of debt, he took the accusations that the enemy had over us rightfully, that we were sinners, and he nailed it to the cross, and he gave us power over the the works of darkness in this world, so we do not have to be enslaved not only to sin, but of the ruler of this world. He sets us free from that. And death. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Roman 5 says, Therefore, as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So as sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, death entered this world. And it is not God's final plan. And ultimately, death does separate us, this physical death, but the second death, the eternal separation from God. But Jesus came delivering us from all of it. And our ultimate hope, and we're going to be talking about this more next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, So come back next week if you want to hear about our ultimate hope. But our hope of the freedom from death is Jesus' resurrected body. God has promised that those who have put their trust in him 
who've received that forgiveness, received that life from above that Jesus offers, that even death will not separate us from him. And he has promised to resurrect our bodies into the same type of body he had that will not go undergo the same corruption that his body, that our bodies go through. And in the story of Lazarus, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, if you remember that, he's going to raise Lazarus of the dead to bring joy to his friends and his family and an evidence of the kingdom of God and the evidence of the already but not yet kingdom of God, which again, we'll talk about next week. And as he's going to the grave, it says Jesus was filled with anger. And I've always, it's always struck me that Jesus going to the grave was filled with anger. I believe he was looking at death and angry at the sting of death and what it causes in this world because Jesus came to this world into this mess with compassion. John 3 is very clear. He didn't come to condemn the world. He did not come to condemn the world. He came that the world might be saved through him. So he comes angry at what death has brought into the world and he came to conquer it. And it said when he went to his death, death could not hold him and it could not. And so our hope And our future is all tied up into that resurrected body of Jesus who has promised to keep us and to raise us with him in the last day. One of my favorite verses, you could call it my life verse, Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ who is your life, when he appears, you will also appear with him. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That is fantastic news, as Lori talked about up here. Things may be going crazy in our world, difficulties, pains, sorrows, because we still live in a world ruled by an enemy. We still have our flesh, and death is still a reality for us all around us. But the peace that Jesus offers isn't contingent on those things. It's the reality that we have already died with him, And that our life is hidden with him now. That he gives us his Holy Spirit. Not just forgiveness here and now. Not just freedom from sin. But his very presence as he fills us with his spirit. And so our present hope is that we are with him now. And that nothing will separate us from him, even death. So sin enters through Satan's temptation to mistrust God. Then death through sin. And we're in the mess that we are, but Jesus shows up. So we no longer have the record of debt that sin places on us to keep us from God. We no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer under the authority of Satan, the ruler of this world. And death will not have the final word. That is the good news of great joy, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wants us to receive this morning. He wants it to fill us with joy. And if you have not received that, I encourage you, I'm going to talk about how we receive it, that Jesus wants you to come to him to receive this great joy, that we are his now and forever, and he has disarmed every obstacle for us to be with him and to be glorifying him forever and ever. How do we receive? This is not a full walkthrough 
of how we receive salvation. I am more wanting to talk about the posture of how we come to receive the salvation that Jesus offers. How do we come to receive the salvation Jesus offers? To put it over simply simplified, in Jesus' death and his blood poured out, he offers a forgiveness we talked about. In his resurrection, we are safe forever, and by his spirit, we live with him free from the power of sin and Satan. But how we do that, Romans 10, 13 simply says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So simply we come to Jesus, but how do we come? Just two things, true humility and total surrender. We have to come with humility. There's a temptation to want to approach Jesus with some list of good that I've done. This is like Santa Claus. Here's my naughty list, sure, but have you seen the nice list? There's a few things on it. It's a million to one ratio, but please will you notice the good things that I've done. When we come to Jesus in that posture, really simply things have not gotten bad enough for us yet. We don't recognize the state that we're in. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 about two men that go up to pray. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth that I have to the poor. But the tax collector comes, and he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Only the humble receive salvation. Only those who know truly the type of salvation that they need. What keeps us from coming to Jesus is not that we're not good enough yet. It's that we're not bad enough yet. It's that things have not gotten worse enough, if that's correct grammar, for us to come in that posture of humility of, I have nothing to bring you but my mess and my sin and my brokenness. I have nothing, but I still come. Things haven't gotten worse enough yet. And you know, a splinter in a toe is uh, not as serious as sin, Satan, and death, but for a five-year-old girl, it's a pretty big deal. And on the Advent celebration we had last Sunday, my five-year-old daughter, Ellie, got the smallest little splinter in one of her toes right when we were about to leave, and it caused her great grief uh, and lament. And so we got her in the car, took off her shoe, drove her home, got her on the counter. I pulled some tweezers out. I see the splinter. It may hurt a little bit, but I know I can get that splinter out, and she is not having it. She is freaking out. And she, every time I go with the tweezers into the toe, she grabs her toe and keeps me from touching it. She grabs it. And I was like, Ellie, the only way this is going to happen if you let me just one time get these tweezers on your toe. And she was not having it. I said, Ellie, do you trust me? And she looked at me with tears in her face and said, no. <laughs> and she was honest. And we always tell them, no matter what, be honest. That is the number one thing. And so she got that. And she said another thing. She, I said, Ellie, it's going to keep hurting unless you let me get it. And she looked at me and she goes, I just want it to keep hurting. 
But listen to that. Listen. I just want it to keep hurting. The, the people who received the greatest salvation as you read through the Gospels are those who were the most desperate, who knew they had no other chance but the power of Jesus. They had no other chance. But if it's not gotten worse enough yet, say, I, it's okay, it'll keep hurting, but I can't come with that type of surrender. And that's the other thing, and they're connected, but it's total surrender into his arms. We have to come with the humility, but we also have to entrust ourselves to him fully, and that is a scary thing. I didn't finish the story of how the cave divers um, got rescued, or how the boys and their coach that were caught in the cave got rescued. They were found, and the whole world rejoiced, but the divers who found them got more scared than they were before because they had swam two hours underwater through pitch bark dark caves to underwater to get to this place where they were above water and they had to pull these boys out of that cave and the monsoon season was just starting so there was no waiting it out the rains were coming and so the world rejoiced but about five days earlier, before they found the kids, they found three uh, adult rescue or adult workers that were there to drain the cave, and they were a 30-second swim from safety. So they found them, 30-second swim. They gave them the respirators to put, put in their mouth so they could breathe underwater and took them 30 seconds to safety. And in those 30 seconds, uh, the, the seasoned cave divers said that they almost died. They freaked out so immensely that it was almost impossible to get them 30 seconds underwater to safety. So now the proposition is 12 children, two hours underwater with a respirator. And so one of the cave divers called his friend in Australia, who is another crazy hobbyist cave diver, also an anesthesiologist. And they asked him, hey, what could we sedate these kids to get them out of this cave? And the anesthesiologist said, Absolutely not, and in no way, and in no scenario would they survive you doing that. I can think of 25 ways they would die right off the bat. Two days later, they called them back and they said to the anesthesiologist, they said, if we don't try this, they will die. If we do try it, they may die. So, the end of the story is, there's a great documentary on this called Rescue, commend it to you. Um, they end up taking the anesthesiologist, seven different divers, I think it was, to the, no, this cave. They sedated these children, put them completely asleep, put a respirator on their face, and swam them two hours underneath water out in, from the cave into safety. Every single one of them survived. <laughs> no one thought it was possible, and that, those details didn't get released until afterwards. So these children had to put their hands in these divers and get sedated and be carried all the way into safety and they had no ability but to put their hands, their lives into the hands of these swimmers. And I think in a lot of ways the proposition of total surrender to Jesus for him to save our lives and bring us to God can seem like something that is familiar to us if we've been in Christianity for a while but that is the only proposition. Jesus 
is incredible for a million different ways. And one of the facets of his beauty is that in saving us, the only one who did not need to be saved modeled this pathway of salvation in his very act of saving us. In his very act for saving us, he gave us the pathway of salvation to come and die. In the garden, he told, he's prayed to the Father, he said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, my, your will, not my will. And he went to his death, trusting that death could not hold him, and trusting his Father. So in his very act of saving us, the one who didn't need saving, he models for us the only offer to us is to come to Jesus, to come and die, to put our lives completely in his hands, to trust him utterly and completely. That's his offer for us. And a lot of times I think even if we have been walking with Jesus for a while, we can approach him in another way. We can approach him in a way that we still can clean ourselves up. We still come with our own righteousness. We still come with some things to offer. But we have to come helpless. And if you don't know Jesus and you haven't received him as your Lord, his offer is completely free. But he does require that we trust him completely. And when we do, on the other side of it, as Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. His promise is that when we do lose our life, put our lives in his hands, his promise is we will find true life. His promise is something called eternal life. That eternal life that starts now with his presence in us and is in its fullness that day when all manner of lawlessness, all sin, sickness, and death will be removed, and only thing that will be there is an unimpeded enjoyment of God, our Savior, and Jesus, the one who loved us to death forever. So, what I want to make clear and close with is when we receive this type of salvation from Jesus, humble and helpless, we, remain, we keep that posture, but we don't live in the cave anymore. Those boys, when they came, set foot on dry ground and were reunited with their friends and their family, they didn't go find another cave to live in the rest of their days. They didn't go find another dark cave. This feels comfortable. I'm gonna live in this cave again. They were set free to live. They were alive again. They were gone, they were lost, and then they were found. They were dead, but they were made alive, and so they were brought to safety to live. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
we too might walk in newness of life. We too might walk in the same way that Jesus lived, enjoying the love of his Father and pouring out his life for others. We too might do that because of the power of Jesus. Romans 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so I just want to say that as we come to Jesus in this way, I think it's really important for us to understand and recognize that we are no longer in that helpless state, not because we have gotten better, but because we have the power of Jesus in us, and that's what he's promised. It's because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. We don't have to be ruled by the pestering of Satan. and We don't have to be ruled by the fear of death either. In Hebrews 2, the author says, By Jesus' death... He might break the power of him that holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now through Jesus, because we've come to him in this way, we come out and he, get, he says eternal life. Life and life to the full is his offer. And though this world where we still have sin at work in us, fighting against who God has truly made us to be, where we still have our enemy wreaking havoc in different ways and where we still experience death all around us. This is not our ultimate hope. The next week, again, we're going to talk about our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is the fullness of what has already begun. We'll talk about that next week. But our hope, our ultimate hope, is the fullness, the completion of what has already begun, what we've already tasted of eternal life by the power of Jesus in us. And what our enemy wants to tell us is, yes, Jesus has saved you, but you have no power over sin, you have no power over the devil, and you need to be afraid of death and to live your days until heaven in that way. That's not the offer that Jesus provides us, and he is so compassionate and so kind. But for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to be a witness to this world an embodied witness of the hope that is coming, of the offer of salvation. We don't live under the slavery of sin. We don't live under the slavery of the devil. We don't live under the slavery of the fear of death. He sets us free from all of these things. And I don't know about you, but I have a long way to go in embodying that fully. And Jesus is so ready to help us. Here at the end, we're going to pray every time, if you're guessing here, every Every sermon, after every sermon, we have uh, people up here that are praying. You guys can come up. Um, music team and, and uh, prayer team can come up. Um, we have people up here that want to pray with you. Um, and just a, a note, these people really do want to pray with you. They've raised their hand to be a part of the prayer post-sermon. We call it post-sermon prayer team. Um, so they're excited to pray with you. We do trainings together. We talk about um, just the excitement of getting to pray for each other. Um, but also you might need to just spend some time as we move into some prayer of just reflecting on whatever God is speaking to you. Um, because like I said, I need, I need help along that journey. I need help to take hold of all that Jesus bought for me. I need help to believe down to the deepest part of who I am that I am safe and secure, 
that my salvation is secure, that my sins are completely forgiven, and he's not bringing them back up again. That Satan doesn't have ultimate power over me. That his bite now is toothless. For the world and for those who are perishing, for those who will be separated from God and found in their sins, his bite has teeth. But for us that are in Christ, even when he pesters us in this time, his bite is toothless and death does not have the final word. So I need help to believe that, to receive it. I think Jesus and the Holy Spirit wants us, wants to help us, even in this place this morning. And again, if you've never received Jesus in this way, he says, come. Don't figure things out. Don't try to figure out all the answers. Don't clean yourself up. (laughs) He just says, come. Because Jesus and what he did, but more than that, all of who he is, is our salvation. All of who he is, is our salvation now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until we're with him in that place, unimpeded, face to face. He came into this world with such compassion to heal, like Lori said, to make whole, to restore. He is that same God. And if you need rescue in this room this morning, if you've recognized you are separated from God in your sins, you need rescue, he's got it. Or maybe you're struggling with something. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's something else. He's got your rescue. Every step of the way, Jesus is our rescue. And I just want to conclude by reading this passage from Matthew to reflect on what it took for God to rescue us. What did it take for God to rescue us? We look at Jesus in Matthew 27, 39 through 43. This is when Jesus was being crucified. He says, those who passed, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross and we'll believe him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus, the only one who didn't need rescue, refused rescue. He said, I could have called down legions of angels to remove myself from that cross. But he refused rescue. He listened to the mocking the creator of the universe on the cross with all power and all authority being mocked by mere humans, mocking him. He saved others. Why doesn't he rescue himself? He refused that so you could be saved, so that you could be rescued, so that you could be set free. That is what Jesus looks like. That is who he is. And he saves us into that same type of life. 
that we now would not live for ourselves, but we would live in the same way, laying down our lives for others, that they would live, that they would know this good news, that they would know what it tastes like to live with God here and now and have the hope of a future with him forever.